Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, I'm guest host Shona Thompson. Is there a desire in the electorate for change in Ottawa? Dr. Lori Turnbull, professor at the Faculty of Management with Dalhousie University, thinks that could be part of the reason for the recent cabinet overhaul. And is that the same reason why the Ontario Liberals just won two by-elections, one of them in a Tory stronghold? We'll put that question to Sabrina Nanji, publisher of the Queen's Park Observer. And there are some pretty wild things happening to our neighbours south of the border. We'll check in with Washington correspondent for Global News, Reggie Cicchini. The Bill Kelly podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There's something that happens every so often in politics. It's almost like a hive mind effect. Every so often, the public just gets a desire for change. Maybe it's that the governing body has been in power for too long. Maybe it's that people don't like the direction that things are going. Maybe they just think political parties need to be reminded of who's really in control. In fact, the prime minister was asked just after the cabinet shuffle if the size of that shuffle was an admission that things weren't going that well for his government. We need to continue to put our very best foot forward and work even harder to deliver for Canadians. And having a renewed team uh, with a range of new voices and new skills and experience, new challenges for our strongest ministers to be able to step up and meet this consequential moment in the lives of Canadians. Well, change may be coming for the Liberals. It's the focus of the latest op-ed in the Globe and Mail by Dr. Laurie Turnbull, professor at the Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University. And Dr. Turnbull joins us right now. Good morning, Laurie. Good morning. Uh, Your column is suggesting that, at least in part, the cabinet overhaul last week may have been an attempt to hold on to power and the public interest. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a challenge for a government that's in its eighth year and its third term and wants to clearly wants to reoffer and and wants to stay in the game. It's a challenge when things like voter fatigue are real and voters will naturally, not all of them, but many of them will start to look around and see what else is on the menu and if there's anybody else who can bring fresh ideas. I think this is healthy, to be honest. I mean, we don't want to get into a kind of path dependency where we don't look around and see what else is is possible. And it's a way of holding the government to account. Elections are real. We, as you said, you know, we are, we're the ones in charge and people will think about whether or not there's a better way of doing things. The key is going to be, um, you know, given the change momentum, whether the liberals can actually offer themselves and their new refreshed cabinet as a, as an option for, of change, right? Like, even though they're the incumbent, can they show up differently in a way that the voters say, okay, you know, like this is actually a different direction and we're excited about that and we can get on board. So that's a question. But the other question is whether there's change in the air or not, do voters accept any of the alternatives? So people can be interested in change all they want, but if nobody really wants any of the other options, or if not enough people want any of the other options, then, you know, it'll the next election might might be a bit of a, um, I don't know how you describe it, but, you know, there might not be a clear winner of the next election. There might be support, you know, support really dispersed among the parties. Yeah, that's, it's sort of an interesting thing that's happening right now, because both Trudeau and Pierre Poiliev seem to be so divisive. People either love them or they absolutely hate them. That's the thing, is that neither of them seems to be appealing, um, you know, far beyond their own bases. They actually seem to repel uh, some people, you know, some people are just so f- done with Trudeau. They're not interested. They're not listening to anything he has to say. And we've seen Polyev, um, even though the Conservatives have built 
a 10-point lead on the Liberals or a 9-point lead, depending on what poll you're looking at, Polyev himself is having a hard time building popularity with people. And so we can see him try different tactics in order to do that. And so most latest, we've seen him change his his appearance. We've seen him get rid of the glasses. He's dressing differently. He's kind of showing up differently in his own way. And I think that's not to convert anybody who's decided Polyev is not their guy. That, that's not going to work for anybody who just doesn't like him. I think that's about trying to att- attract some attention from people who haven't looked at him yet. And so it's going to, I mean, we don't know when the next election is going to be. The timing of that is going to be very important in determining what, if any, of these tactics by the different political parties are going to work in terms of of getting more votes. Yeah, is a change in cabinet shuffling things around? And actually, you know, there's been quite an overhaul and a lot of new faces that have been brought in. Um, But Trudeau still seems to have the support of the Liberal Party anyway. And so there probably isn't a desire to change the leader, but you're going to have to change something up if you're going to hold the interest of the electorate. So that's a really interesting question, too, is whether the changes he's made over the past week are actually going to be enough to um, show up differently. And I think it's difficult to make the argument when the prime minister is the same, the finance minister is the same, um, some of those major portfolios, the people around the prime minister haven't changed, that the chief of staff haven't ch- hasn't changed. When you keep those key people in place, you can make changes in other parts of the, the machine, but with those leaders still in place, it's hard to really see a different direction for the whole thing. I think we've seen the prime minister with this shuffle um, want to make use of the, some of the talent that he had on the bench, a lot of it actually. So 20 of the ministers got new portfolios, many of which really had nothing to do with their old portfolios. So they're doing very different jobs or they're about to be doing very different jobs. And then he's got seven people who hadn't, haven't, you know, were thrown out of cabinet altogether and then seven new people. And so we can see him with that those appointments trying to represent the diversity of the country. He's really um, shown like he's doubling down on the parts of the country that are supporting liberals. So Ontario, Quebec, Atlantic Canada are where the vast majority of those cabinet appointments are coming from. So we can see that the prime minister is trying to connect with supporters, making sure they're still there for him, making sure that maybe in some of those swing ridings, um, in Toronto, for example, around the Toronto area, that the Liberals are still going to be able to mobilize their vote so that they don't lose anything they have. Because that's, I mean, come on, right? Like he's a, a third term prime minister. He's asking for a fourth. He's going to be asking for a fourth whenever the election is. And so he's got to be worried about keeping what he has as much as he's got to be worried about whether he can grow. And that would explain why there are so many new faces from the Toronto area that are in cabinet right now. I mean, if you're an MP that's seeking re-election, it's a lot easier to do that if you're also a cabinet minister. Oh, 100 percent. And incumbency is a very important factor in Canada, not as as um, determinant as it is in the United States, but it's hard to beat an incumbent for all kinds of different reasons. But yes, if you've got that that profile of being a cabinet minister, if you have the possibility that you're able to make decisions, perhaps bring some things home for the riding, uh, draw some attention to the riding, you, you've got a different, you know, you've got a connection to the prime minister. That's a different sort of, um, you know, that you're playing a different role than you are if you're an MP. Another thing too, is for any anyone who won their seat during the 2019 election, That's only, you know, that's only two years or sorry, during the 2019 or 2021 elections, those elections are only like four years and two years ago. And so 
there, and then you got COVID on top of that. And so the ability of those MPs to be able to really build connections with the voters to ensure that those voters are going to show up for them again and, you know, to show what they've done for the riding and to show how they've got more to offer. It's harder to do that when you've only been there a few years. It's harder to do that when COVID was creating obstacles to everything, especially um, going out and meeting people and shaking hands and getting to know people and sitting down at tables like MPs couldn't do those very important political activities that help them to build that connection with voters that send them back to the Hill. And so I think the Prime Minister might also be thinking about how to help some MPs who are maybe in some of those tougher ridings um, make sure that they get some elevated presence so that the voters thinking about that. We're speaking with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, who's a professor at the Faculty of Management with Dalhousie University. And Laurie, one of the things that you were saying about how difficult it was during COVID for MPs or even cabinet ministers to do some of the job of managing uh, their portfolios, managing their writings, going out glad-handing, meeting people, um, I'm wondering if that was one of the reasons why so many from uh, the Conservative Party of Canada um, actually tried to shore up a lot of the support within the Freedom Convoy. I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see whether the sort of constituency of support that Pierre Polyev is trying to build actually holds for him because he's doing something um, that's a bit unusual for a conservative leader. Like we can see, for example, that Pierre Polyev is polling well among young people. That's traditionally not where the conservatives get their vote. I think that's also part of what Justin Trudeau is trying to respond to in this cabinet shuffle is that we, many of the new, uh, many of the new appointees are on, on the younger side. So it could be that, that Trudeau is trying to send that kind of message and, and cut into some of that constituency that Polyev is building. But the other thing is that we've seen a new sort of constituency form around reactions to how the government handled COVID-19. So I think that's kind of, I'm, I'm connecting to your point here and saying, look, you know, Polyev has tried to build um, on that support and on that frustration with the government regulations around COVID-19. And we saw a lot of that frustration come out during during the convoy. And although, of course, the, the actual participants in the convoy are, you know, a very small number of people across the country, like when you when you think about it. But the support for the convoy, we saw, you know, a number of public opinion polls indicate support, not necessarily support for the tactics of the convoy, but support for the 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 purpose and the arguments and the frustration with how government the government handled things. Now some of that is maybe more appropriately directed at provincial governments, but nevertheless there is a, a palpable, you know, F. Trudeau uh, <laughs> response to this that's, that Polyev, I think, is trying to capitalize on. And so the next election will be a test of whether he's actually able to turn that momentum into a viable political constituency that he can rely on. Well, isn't one of the challenges that he's going to face between now and whenever this election uh, is called and occurs, I mean, it's easy to criticize, it's tough to govern. And so at some point, you may be able to ride in on a wave of backlash, but at some point, you're going to be the guy who's making the decisions. And if you don't have a, a discernible platform that says, here's what I'm going to do, well, you've got an even bigger challenge. Yeah, exactly. I mean, trying to harness the angry vote is, you know, he could be very successful in that. But that's a completely different thing than when you actually get sworn in as prime minister and now you have to govern. And you're governing with the support of people who you have led to believe um, that government is against you. Government is a bad thing. You know, like 
Pierre Polyev has plucked the threads of a very anti-government, um, sometimes conspiracy theory. You know, we, we need less government. We need to break down the institutions that govern us. We need to be suspicious of things. We need and, and we need to, you know, really be unpacking all of that and thinking about how, you know, just breaking everything down to the studs. But when he gets in, what is he going to do? And he hasn't been clear about that. I think it'll be interesting to see when a campaign does begin in earnest and when they actually hit the campaign trail, how will Pierre Polyev perform at the door? How will Pierre Polyev perform in leaders' debates when there are specific questions that he's going to find harder to get around? And maybe the answer that, you know, Justin Trudeau is your biggest enemy is not going to be enough for people. Yeah, that's true, because all we've seen to this point is, um, is you know, Pierre Poli of being hypercritical about everything. You know, this whole bit about, you know, and so we have to fire the prime minister. We have to fire mm-hmm. Justin Trudeau. Um, that only works for so long. Andrew Scheer tried that a lot. It did not work for him. No. And I mean, that's, I think, going to be an interesting test of Polyev too. Like a lot of things are different now than they were when Andrew Scheer was trying to become prime minister in 2019. So the questions are going to be, you know, is the timing different enough? Has the voter fatigue with the liberals set in enough to give Polyev another kind of chance that the other leaders before him didn't have? And is he different enough of a candidate? Is he building something that Scheer and O'Toole couldn't build? And is he going to be able to avoid the traps that they fell into, many of which were set by the liberals, frankly, because when Trudeau gets back into a corner, like love him or hate him, he is he is a, quite a formidable campaigner. And so Polyev, in some ways, I think, enjoys right now a period that um, he will not last once the campaign is actually called because Trudeau has a way of kicking into high gear and becoming, you know, instead of speaking sometimes like when it's not the campaign period, <clears throat> oftentimes Trudeau kind of speaks in this very lofty language and he's aspirational tones and he's talking about these big, um, you know, you know, very, very like high level goals and things like that. But then when he starts campaigning, he shifts and he becomes very much, very much more pointed and, he wedges, right? Like he starts to practice even some of Polyev's tactics against him. It'll be very interesting to see what happens. No doubt it'll be the basis of more conversations between us. Laurie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you too. Take care. You too. Dr. Laurie Turnbull is a professor in at the faculty management with Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. By elections don't always garner a lot of attention, particularly during the summer, but two by elections were held in Ontario last week. And they are drawing some notice because both went to the Liberals. One was a stronghold, Scarborough Guildwood, but the other was a major upset for the progressive conservatives, Kanata Carlton. We hear more from Colin DeMello. A triumphant walk into Queen's Park for a party that out-hustled their opponents to win two Ontario by-elections. In a surprising upset, the Liberals managed to hang on to the riding of Scarborough Guildwood while flipping Kanata Carlton, a long-held progressive conservative riding, sending two new new Liberal MPPs to Queen's Park. Now, one of those paying close attention is Sabrina Nanjay, the publisher of the Queen's Park Observer. Good morning, Sabrina. Hi, Shona. So your reaction to the by-elections? 
Yeah, I mean, I think Colin pretty much summed it up correctly there. You know, a major upset for the Conservatives, not only in Kanata Carlton, which they've held since basically that riding was formed, uh, but also in Scarborough Guildwood, where they put up a huge fight. They had, a, you know, a high profile candidate in Gary Crawford. He's a local councillor in Toronto, former local councillor in Toronto, uh, former budget chief, a big name. Someone who's been, you know, in at least office municipally for a long time. They had ministers out door knocking almost daily. The premier himself, former mayor John Tory, was making robocalls. But it wasn't enough to, uh, you know, knock the liberals off their perch there. But I will say they really did give the liberals a run for their money. Andrea Hazel, who ended up holding onto the seat that was formerly held by Mitzi Hunter, uh, she, she won by not as much as Mitzi Hunter. So about 10 points less than... The liberals usually get in that riding now i will just add you know it's summer it's by-elections people are you know on vacation they're they've got better things to do and worry about than than a by-election um so you know turnout was expected to be a bit lower but certainly i think the liberals if you're a liberal you're feeling a, a renewed energy these days and you know you, as you mentioned you had some high-profile Tories not only running, but you had Doug Ford knocking on doors. You had John Tory offering his support. And the Liberals don't have a leader right now. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's interesting that the Liberals are using this um, to kind of say that they've got momentum, that the Conservatives and the NDP should be really paying attention. Because while this is a huge win for the party that was absolutely decimated in 2018 and has not been able to make a comeback, um, they they managed to, to pull it out. Uh, and they, they only have nine seats in the House. It's still not enough even for recognized party status, which gives you a lot of extra resources, staff, um, money even to do uh, research, that sort of thing. But, you know, they, they're, they're uh, in the headlines a lot these days, the Liberals. I think the Liberal brand is still strong in Ontario, uh, but they've got this high-profile leadership race coming up. And while we won't know who's going to be the leader until December, there are, you know, five people running to be the leader of, of this third-place party right now that think that they can bring the party back uh, to, you know, potentially rule again. You know, Justin Trudeau did it at the federal level where he brought the Liberals from third to first. And you, they think that the this is a sign that it could happen. And I guess it depends on your vantage point. I mean, either people are happy with the Liberals or they're really unhappy with the Ford government. And I think the by-election, you know, depending on who you are, you can look at it both ways. Well, one of the things that I was reading um, that uh, some pundits felt was a reason why the Tories did so poorly in their stronghold of uh, Kanata Carlton, a riding that they have held for, I think it's like 100 years. But the Ottawa area feels like they're being ignored. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's incredibly interesting what happened in the Capitol because there used to be a minister there, Marilee Fullerton. This by-election um, was held to replace her seat. And, and you know, she had a voice at the cabinet table. And, uh, you know, the minister, she had rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. She was in charge of a really controversial file, long-term care, as we know, was an absolute disaster in the past few years uh, during the pandemic. But the conservative candidate, Sean Webster, he had been talked about as being a shoe-in for cabinet. We know there's all these rumors that there's going to be a shuffle at some point this summer. And so it's clearly, you know, a message to the Ford government that Ottawa is not happy with you because, you know, they gave up the chance to have 
someone at the cabinet table. And clearly over the past few years, they've felt that that's not really done much for their riding. I mean, there's a, there's no shortage of things for Ottawa to be upset about. I mean, the Ford government's inaction over the, the so-called Freedom Convoy. Um, there were some local politics that people have pointed out about a golf course there. I guess all politics is local. You know, healthcare is, is a disaster in all corners of the province. Um, and meanwhile, they've got the Liberals had Karen McCrimmon, the former MP, someone who's well-known, well-liked, running for the Liberals, and she managed to turn it out for that party. Uh, you mentioned in there that there is likely to be a Ford cabinet. Sh- it seems every all the parties are moving, you know, the political furniture around this summer. Um, but uh, if if Ford is going to be doing a bit of a cabinet shuffle as well, is that uh, is similar to the strategy that uh, Justin Trudeau was using last week and trying to rewrite uh, some of the um, the prospects for the months to come? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the the timing is a little different federally and provincially because, of course, the next scheduled election in Ontario is 2026, which is a bit of a longer ways out. Um, But the Ford government is just over one year into their second mandate. It kind of makes sense to do a bit of a refresh. There has been some controversial files. Uh, I've been hearing Transportation Minister Caroline Mulroney will be shuffled out of that role. Um, There are some, uh, you know, higher profile People like uh, Prabhmeet Zarkaria, he's the Treasury Board President right now. I think he's looking to be more front and center, have more of a front-facing role. Um, And there are some backbenchers that are looking to get into the front bench there. And so it does make sense for the Ford government to do a bit of a rejig. Um, And, and, you know, there's not a lot of time left. The House is coming back at the end of September. So we're hearing that this could happen in the coming weeks, just so that the new ministers can get their binders, get up to speed on their new files, and then be ready to go when the house comes back. Well, it also helps to protect Caroline Mulrooney a bit if the if she is indeed going to be shuffled out of uh, transportation, because we've just had that story um, that Global News brought forward that uh, apparently it's the premier's office that is controlling all of the communications coming out of Metrolinx. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, this was something that has been buzzed about for a very long time. And Global News ended up getting the kind of the proof of it, you know, these freedom of information documents that they received showing internal communications have um, suggesting that the premier's office is, is tightly controlling what Metrolink says. And we know that Metrolink has no shortage of its own controversies, its own problems, and they're not happy with the uh, what they say is the, the premier's office con- controlling the message. And I don't even know if the premier's office controlling the message has managed to do any damage control, because as we know, Metrolink says it's fair share of problems. Uh, but certainly, you know, Caroline Mulrooney being on that file, I mean, the buck stops with the minister and ultimately the premier. And so while I think, you know, they're kind of trying to time this cabinet shuffle so that Mulrooney is not taking the full blame um, I, I did hear that she is going to get shuffled out of it. And this is a higher profile file now. There's a lot to answer for. Mulrooney hasn't exactly been a minister that loves to, you know, get up in front of a microphone and, and speak to us reporters. And so I'm hearing she might go into a bit of a lower profile portfolio while someone who can, you know, go toe to toe and answer some of these tough questions on what's happening with transportation and transit um, will be put into that position. Yes, but she does get to take her King's Council designation with her. (laughs) That's absolutely right. (laughs) Um, And that is one of the things that uh, some people are still kind of 
you know, discussing. It's like, really? We're going back to that? We haven't had that since what? I think it was the mid 80s, was it? Yeah, you're right. This is something that um, has just been a growing headache for the Ford government. They seem to be, you know, sticking to it. Uh, I, 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 there could be some backlash with this shuffle. I mean, Attorney General Doug Downey, obviously, he and other cabinet ministers were pushing for this designation. But the reason why it was scrapped by a then liberal premier was because it just turned into something that was flat out a, a patronage exercise. I mean, I think that there are some deserving lawyers that got this King's Council designation. Um, but then uh, there were a lot of surprising moves too. I mean, PC donors, uh, PC staff, uh, and you know, that's not, it's a bunch of Tories and not really so many, you know, liberals or NDPers. So it, it does seem blatantly partisan to people that are paying attention. And, you know, you can even look at these by-elections as, uh, you know, some reaction to that. I mean, there was an abacus data poll that suggested that more than half of people in the province think that the Ford government favors its friends, its insiders over, you know, the, the general public. And I think that this King's Council designation everything that's going on in the green belt, which, you know, there are negative headlines almost weekly now. Uh, you know, I think that this, this is really sending the Ford government a message that even though we are a long ways away out from 2026, if they continue on this path, they could be in trouble electorally. And and you can change the, uh, the narrative um, by doing some of these other things that distract people only for so long. If you still have problems with housing affordability, you still have controversy over uh, opening up the green belt, those concrete issues will stay with the electorate. Yeah, you're, you're completely right. You know, um, voters are, are paying attention. It, it may be summer, but they're really paying attention to the Ford government. And I think... Uh, you know, the government getting its second whopping majority mandate, even though turnout was very low last spring, um, a lot of governments in general have been given um, a lot of forgivability from the public because of dealing with the pandemic. And so I think that now that we're sort of, you know, in the clear, we're into more of a recovery phase, a lot of people are looking to the government to help them deal with their everyday issues. You mentioned it, affordability, healthcare. And so things like the King's Council designation, I think have ticked off a lot of regular folks because they are struggling at the at the pumps. They're struggling at the grocery store. And so if, you know, in 2026, the you, there's opposition leaders, whoever will be leading the Liberal Party, Marit Stiles with the NDP, you know, standing in an empty field saying there should have been a hospital here or there should have been a house, you know, a housing development here, and the Ford government hasn't been able to do it, then I think that um, voters are certainly going to be sending them a message. Well, it's something we'll be keeping track of, and we appreciate your help on that. Thanks so much for having me. Sabrina Nanji is the publisher of the Queen's Park Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There have been some strange and well, interesting happenings in the country just to ourselves. Here with some of the items is our cor- one of our correspondents in Washington, Reggie Giacchini. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. Have you had an interesting week? Uh, it's always an interesting week down here. <laughs> always. <laughs> it sure is. Uh, just in the last half hour, court was convened to deal with Carlos de Oliveira, who is the property manager at Merrill Lago. Uh, as a part of the whole classified documents case, you know, it's starting to seem like if you're standing next to Donald Trump for any length of time, you're going to get caught up in one of the investigations. 
Yeah, and look, that's true for any number of the investigations that's going on around Donald Trump. Uh, Carlos de Oliveira making his court appearance in uh, Palm Beach, Florida. Interestingly enough, though, uh, he is got to wait until August 10th uh, for his arraignment because he wasn't able to secure local counsel to represent him. Uh, so the magistrate uh, in Florida there released him on a $100,000 bond, uh, and, and he's not allowed to talk to anybody, including uh, Donald Trump, uh, about the case. Uh, but again, this is now the third person caught up in this indictment with reports suggesting that a fourth person at Mar-a-Lago has also been um, hit with a target letter. So, I mean, at least in this one case, the walls you know, they're closing in and they're closing in fast. It's just swooping up more people. Well, you would think that, you know, access or or paid legal counsel would be one of the benefits that you would need to have as an employee at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. And I mean, look, uh, number one, uh, the former president uh, has been known to cover the legal fees uh, for some of these lawyers, but also the way that Florida works is you have to have local counsel. Uh, and if you don't have local counsel, you can't do anything. Uh, you know, you'd think that somebody in Florida would have access to that. But nonetheless, here we are with a potential delay now to you know how this case is going to uh, move forward. Who else is going to get caught up in it? But at the end of the day, you know, this is just one of the legal kind of uh, uh, issues that are surrounding the former president uh, with eyes still focused not only on Florida, but also in Georgia, where news happened today, and also in Washington, where news could happen at any minute. What's happened in Georgia now? Well, so in Georgia, the former president was looking uh, to actually overturn uh, and disqualify the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, uh, from being able to carry forward the investigation. He wanted to nullify or quash the special grand jury that recommended the indictment. And a hearing was actually expected to take place on August 10th. And within the last maybe hour, hour and a half, uh, a judge in Georgia denied Donald Trump's request to basically shut down this entire investigation and special grand jury into him, meaning that uh, that D.A. Willis ultimately could move forward with these indictments against the former president, uh, maybe in the next couple of days, maybe in the next couple of weeks. This is something that she has really been gearing up for uh, for the latter part of the last two years. Yeah, we've seen the barricades being set up, or at least, uh, you know, in certain news stories, you can see them the barricades set up around the Fulton County Courthouse. And uh, she told uh, the, um, the courts to, to clear the decks for the first couple of weeks in August. Yeah, she did, uh, to, to essentially guarantee that there would be, you know, less of a spectacle in and around um, in and around the courthouse. Uh, and look, Donald Trump is obviously not happy at this. He is pushing back at the fact that he has lost this, uh, you know, one attempt to throw this out. Ultimately, if an indictment is dropped, he would have an attempt or an opportunity, at least, uh, to, to, to appeal that and argue that. And, and essentially, that's what the judge said today. But politics is playing in heavily here. I mean, look, Trump denies any wrongdoing and is essentially saying Fonnie Willis is only going after me because she is a Democrat and he can tie that into what he sees as this weaponized government under um, the administration of Joe Biden, uh, you know, going after him for what he believes um, are, are ultimately a bunch of nothing burgers. But given the fact that there are two indictments on the books already, a third possible, a fourth possible, it's getting harder for Trump to make the case that he is not um, a flawed candidate within the Republican Party at this point. Well, it does seem to be more like, here's the beef as opposed to, you know, a nothing burger. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's 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 obvious here that things are 
um, you can see the issues here. Donald Trump is trying to say, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I had a perfect phone call. I didn't do anything when it comes to election interference. The problem is that the evidence is not only overwhelming in a lot of cases, it is simply out there in the public realm. And it is difficult for Trump to be able to distance himself. That said, it's not having any impact on his ability to continue this kind of march towards the Republican nominee. There was polling that just came out um, last night or this morning, Shona, that shows that he has something like a, a, a 50 possible point lead on the number two in the race, Ron DeSantis. So there is a clear kind of uh, liking still for Donald Trump within the base, even though additional polling suggests that there are a growing number of people here who think that Trump may be ha- may have done something illegal at some point. Did, did you say that something may be breaking in Washington on the January 6th? Uh, only soon? in that uh, we are anticipating this uh, indictment to come down. The grand jury uh, didn't do anything last Thursday. We know that they met and they didn't uh, end up moving any indictments forward. The next opportunity for them to sit is tomorrow. But we also understand that the special counsel has additional witnesses uh, that he wants to speak with. So it is kind of begging the question, is uh, the special counsel ready to move with an indictment and then continue and carry out additional um, interviews in order to potentially go after other people that may be a part of that investigation. So whatever is happening in Washington tomorrow within the next 24 hours uh, is is the next opportunity we are going to potentially have here uh, to see more legal problems for the former president. It does seem a little bit like legal whack-a-mole. Well, and I mean, it, it, it is a bit of legal whack-a-mole here. Uh, and the question for Donald Trump and his tr- and his team uh, is to try to be able to navigate the series of different legal crises that he is facing at the same time that he is trying to run forward uh, with the campaign. And here, you know, we're just less than a month away from the first Republican debate. Everybody expected to be on stage. We don't think Donald Trump uh, is going to be there. Uh, but, you know, it, it would put him in a position of having to defend himself while also defending the legal issues that are surrounding him. Um, and, you know, we'll have to see if that's going to happen here. But given that there are just so many things that are starting to close in on Trump at once, there are a bit of concerns here uh, within the Republican Party here that this could make Donald Trump sure likable right now, but a far weaker candidate if he becomes the nominee into the general election. We're speaking with Reggie Giacchini, who's a Washington correspondent for Global News. There are some signs, though, that the stress is starting to get to Donald Trump. Uh, in, in some of the things that I've seen of him, he does not look very good. And he's getting a little bit more nasty, even for Donald Trump, in some of his rhetoric. And this is not something to be surprised about. We've seen Donald Trump on, um, you know, the campaign trail or on a stump speech um, go after and make kind of vicious remarks about somebody, whether it's somebody in his own administration or somebody on the Democratic side. But over the weekend, uh, you had the former president in Pennsylvania, which is kind of Biden country, calling the sitting president of the United States a dumb SOB. Um, and and it rattled people from within the political world argue, uh, who argue that, look, you know, you don't have to like the current president, but there is a respect for the presidency and a respect for the Oval Office um, that needs to be afforded to the person who is in that position. And sure, there were a lot of people who made critical remarks about uh, the former president, but oftentimes they were able to at least try to justify the comments they were making, and they didn't oftentimes resort to kind of as nasty of language or it was it was few and far between the fact that you have trump kind of going off essentially to try and get a rise out of the crowd it is not 
unexpected. But again, it raises that question here. Uh, you know, if, if this is where Trump is resorting to is, is kind of name calling. Is there a bit of fear within Trump camp? Uh, that that things are becoming too difficult for us. Well, and there was uh, there were at least some reports that I saw about his uh, rally in Erie, Pennsylvania, and they were saying, you know, usually the arenas or the stadiums where he has these events, they're usually full. This one, not so much. And he's had this problem um, for the last kind of year or so where he isn't able to pull in as many people as he once was able to during the last presidential campaign. And even when he was the sitting president and would hold these kind of MAGA rallies, you'd have a packed house. It's different now. And whether that's because there is that polling that shows that more than 50 percent of Americans, including some Republicans, think that Trump has done something illegal or because it's still early out. Um, you know, there there are any number of reasons why fewer people might be in the crowd. At the end of the day, it's those that are in the crowd are the ones that are standing by the former president and the ones that everybody else in the pack is ultimately looking for. Because if Trump ultimately finds himself out of the race, uh, these the, the rest of the candidates are going to have to try and, and make a case to the people that are in that crowd. Look, I might not be Donald Trump. But I you know, can do just as good a job, if not better. And that's going to be a tough sell for people who think that Trump is the person that needs to be at the top. Well, and you mentioned that he's, what, about 50 percent ahead of Ron DeSantis, at least within the GOP and uh, and the base that Trump has. Um, and I mean, Ron DeSantis, every time he turns around, he seems to be um, taking more support away from himself than shoring it up because there's been more backlash about his support of the, the Florida education standard requiring students to be instructed on the quote-unquote benefits of slavery. And it's now led him to to kind of clash with uh, members of his own party who are black, including a Florida congressperson and uh, Senator Tim Scott, who is the only uh, black uh, Republican uh, who is a, is a presidential candidate. And there is now a bit of a war of words here that Tim Scott is saying, look, what you are saying here uh, is inappropriate. There is no reason uh, for anybody to be kind of gloating about slavery and saying that there were benefits and net benefits for it. And look, it's not just the Republicans. Kamala Harris was dispatched to Florida um, just last week and, and made scathing remarks about um, the Florida education system and Governor Ron DeSantis. And look, uh, whether it's or not it's working for him in Florida is only one part of the pie here. Nationally, when you have someone like Ron DeSantis now sitting with roughly 17% support in and around the kind of lower rung members of, uh, of the party right now, including former Vice President Mike Pence, this now may be a sign for the DeSantis campaign that we need to broaden beyond you know what we're doing in Florida because there may not be a national appeal for it. But he is cratering in support. He is cratering uh, when it comes to financing. And he is starting to let go of a number of people from his campaign solely because so many people are running away from him. Yeah, we heard that last week there was another downsizing uh, for the DeSantis camp and, uh, and his campaign workers. And and it's again, it's it's to be expected. I mean, when Ron DeSantis came out uh, earlier this year into the campaign, he jumped in at a very strong number two, and there were real, you know, kind of concerns in and around the campaign that maybe he peaked a little too early. And and you know, if the polling is to be believed, that peak may you know be at the kind of decline now. The apex uh, apex is long behind him. So the fact that the money just isn't there, or that he's maxed out. Um, the donors that he can go after for these kind of grassroots and small bits of money here and there, this could be problematic, especially when this election campaign still has, uh, you know, something like 16 or 17 months in it. 
Uh, so if he is at the top, if he's trying to get to the top, there's a long way to go and a lot further than he can fall. Uh, Reggie, sadly, we're out of time and I didn't even get to ask you about the UFO hearing uh, at Congress. I guess that means that wasn't... um, I'm almost glad that you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's almost like that's not the most bizarre thing that happened in Washington last week. But Reggie, thanks always for your time. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.